This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. With the celebration of Chinese New Year just finished, this week we offer up a one-hour special on China's influence in Latin America. What will China's impact be in 2015 and beyond? But first, Gabriela Conchola is here with our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Hundreds of thousands filled the downtown streets of Buenos Aires this week, protesting the actions of the Argentine government and its handling of the death of prosecutor Alberto Nisman. Thousands also protested in other cities across Argentina, and in Spain, France, and Israel, too. Nisman was a special prosecutor who accused Argentina's president and members of her government of covering up Iran's involvement in a terrorist bombing in Buenos Aires. Authorities found Nisman dead the day before he was to present his allegations in front of Argentina's Congress. Members of Argentina's justice system are calling for a full investigation of the president. The head of the Argentine cabinet, Jorge Capitanich, says members of the justice system are conspiring with the country's media to bring down the president. The justice system in Argentina functions as a base of operations for corporate interests, and these corporate interests want to destabilize the political system, and they are working in league with the concentrated media system. A spokesman for U.S. President Barack Obama says the White House is concerned about the rule of law in Argentina. Argentina's president, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, accused the U.S. and Israel of steering Nisman to the wrong conclusions in his investigation. And she complained that both countries were trying to draw Argentina into a conflict with Iran. A committee of the United Nations suggested that Mexico take stronger steps to solve the cases of more than 20,000 people who have disappeared in the past eight years. The United Nations Committee believes Mexican officials, including members of federal and state governments, the military, and the police are involved in many of these disappearances. The committee noted the recent case of 43 missing students from the state of Guerrero as just one instance of authorities involved in forced disappearances. The U.N. suggested Mexico appoint special prosecutors and set up a national database to track such cases. Cries for justice and human rights concerns in Venezuela this week, too. Members of the Sabine, the Venezuelan secret police, stormed the offices of Caracas mayor Antonio Ledesma and took him into custody. Ledesma is a leading opposition figure. Venezuelan authorities said he was in custody because they believe he was involved with an unsuccessful military plot to overthrow President Nicolás Maduro. Also this week, Amnesty International again called for the release of political prisoners Leopoldo López and Daniel Ceballos. Both men led anti-government protests last year. Security agents held special searches of the jail cells of both men this week. Amnesty International says both men have been arbitrarily detained as the Maduro government attempts to shut down leading voices of the opposition. Also in Venezuela, the central bank has revealed that inflation is now running at almost 69% annually. This economic news comes on the heels of moves by the Venezuelan government to devalue its currency. The Venezuelan Bolivar has lost 70% of its official value against the U.S. dollar just in the past two weeks. Venezuela has a shortage of dollars and other hard currency, which has worsened shortages of consumer goods in the country. Three U.S. senators on a trade mission to Cuba this week predicted the U.S. Congress could overturn the U.S. economic embargo against the country. Democratic Senators Claire McCaskill of Missouri, Mark Warner of Virginia, and Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota headed the mission sponsored by the Center for Democracy in the Americas. The senators said if chambers of commerce and farm states see the economic opportunities available for trade with Cuba, that could make a difference. U.S. House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi also led a delegation of Democrats to meet with Cuba's foreign minister this week. 
Cuban officials had said they wanted to limit U.S. congressional delegations to the island, but they changed that stance as talks to normalize relations proceeded. The next round of talks is set to open in Washington, D.C. next week. A federal judge in Texas has halted President Obama's plans to alter enforcement of immigration laws. Late last year, Obama issued executive orders that will shield about 5 million unauthorized immigrants from deportation. Many of those immigrant workers are from Mexico and Central America. The judge stepped in to allow 26 states to use the courts to appeal Obama's decision. Conservative opponents to the president's immigration policies have so far been unsuccessful in Congress to block his plans and have now turned to the courts to pursue their strategy. Mexican telenovela star and singer Lorena Rojas died this week after a long bout with breast cancer. She starred in more than a dozen popular telenovelas, including El Cuerpo del Deseo. Although she relocated to Miami, she was regarded as a top star throughout Latin America. Doctors diagnosed Rojas as having cancer in 2008. She was 44 years old. For Latin Pulse, this is Gabriela Canchola. Thanks, Gabriela. And now we begin our special hour on China and its influence in Latin America. And later, we'll be hearing stories about Chinese emigration and how it shaped the culture of Peru. But we begin with Chinese investment and the country's geopolitical strategy. China began the Western calendar year by hosting a meeting with the Community of Latin American and Caribbean States, a multinational group known by its Spanish acronym, CELAC. At that meeting, China's President Xi Jinping pledged to invest $250 billion in the region during the next decade. We asked Mark Jones of Rice University for his analysis of China and its Latin American strategy. Jones is also a fellow at the James A. Baker III Institute for Public Policy. We reached him by long-distance line in Houston, Texas. First and foremost, the Chinese are interested in the mineral wealth, uh, geological wealth, and food resources, the the primary products that Latin America has as a way to hedge for the future and to ensure a reliable supply. They also are increasingly looking at Latin America as a location to do business, particularly large infrastructure projects where the Chinese provide the funding, but also all of the major project personnel, as well as um, many of the raw materials, or at least manufactured materials, often at rates that perhaps would not have been, uh, or at least with a profit margin that's much higher than if it was going out through a uh, bidding process in these countries. We've seen the Chinese follow that model in Africa, and I would guess that the the biggest high-profile project that fits that description is the new canal project in Nicaragua. Are there others? And what do you think about that canal project in Nicaragua? Well, the canal project's a little different in that it, it, it's not as clearly associated with the Chinese government. It's more of an investor. Uh, it also is a little more, I think, dubious in that we're, we're unclear if it actually will ever come to fruition. And uh, certainly in terms of the impact of that project, it's seen in a much more negative light than other Chinese projects in the region. I think there are quite a large number of questions about going on about that with that project. They have broken ground on that project, right. and they have moved um, some campesinos, uh, peasant groups, off of some of the land. So there does seem to be a movement forward so, there. Oh, they're, they're certainly starting it with almost no environmental impact study, or really just a really quick one. Uh, what I think the biggest fear that many Nicaraguans have is that We'll see some progress made, uh, but that it eventually will collapse uh, uh, for economic reasons, and they'll be left with all of the economic and environmental devastation, environmental devastation particularly, but without actually having a canal. You talked about that that may be an outlier. Uh, Can you give us some specifics of of these other projects that 
well, you mentioned. Well, the Nicaraguan project does not seem to have the strong ties to the Chinese government that many of the larger projects, uh, such as the Orinoco development, uh, oil development in Venezuela has, or some recent hydroelectric plants down in Patagonia and Argentina have, and that they're fully backed by the Chinese government, and that the Chinese government provi- is providing the funding in exchange for control of those uh, resources as well as a share of the profits of those resources once they actually come online. And so that's much more of a, I think, link, strong link to the Chinese government where we see the Chinese government and Chinese companies working in concert with Latin American leaders, particularly in countries that are a little more on the outside of the uh, international financial system, where, which are unable to obtain money at reasonable rates on the international market like Argentina and Venezuela and even Ecuador, that we're seeing them look to China as a source of funding for uh, development in their countries that absent the Chinese funding won't happen because there's no way that anyone is going to get loans for that. So we're seeing the Argentines going to Beijing because of this um, problem with being able to pay back their investors and in the debt crisis that they've had. Right. Argentina is is in default on its debt, and it's effectively impossible for both Argentines, but increasingly for Argentine companies to go out on the international markets and raise money for any type of large-scale projects. And that could be developing the shale plays in the Vaca Muerta, or dead cow area of the country, uh, down in Neocane or building hydroelectric plants, or even large uh, road and infrastructure projects. And they're left with the only real source being the Chinese, but this comes at a price, because they're effectively negotiating it from a very weak position, and the Chinese are imposing all of the conditions about how it will be done, who will be the suppliers, and what the profits for the Chinese will be. And in many cases, particularly in the case of Argentina, the current government really isn't worried about the long-term impact of it, because they know that uh, in less than uh, 10 months, they'll be leaving office. You mentioned Ecuador and Venezuela also on that list. Ecuador seemed to come back with Beijing from Beijing in January with a pretty big prize and some specific loans. Uh, a little bit more ambiguous what uh, Caracas and President Maduro got from that visit, recent visit to. Right. Well, I mean, In the case of Venezuela, the Chinese are pretty highly committed already in terms of uh, with a large number of past investments that are being paid by Venezuela with oil. And I think they're at least a little nervous, starting to get a little nervous that they're going to get overextended in Venezuela and that Venezuela won't be able to deliver uh, in terms of payment. And particularly, I think that's why they put some of the brakes on the development of the Orinoco belt. There has been some speculation because of the economic crisis in Venezuela. Um, Hard to say if they're in recession or even into a depressive state at this point. But there has been some speculation on financial markets that that they, too, may fall into default. Right. Well, certainly there's a a large chance that they could fall into default. Uh, the, The oil revenue simply isn't coming in there. And if we see oil remain at somewhere around $50 a barrel... Uh, the Venezuelans are going to go into default. There just isn't going to be a, a way for them to continue to import the foodstuffs they need to feed the Venezuelan people and at the same time make all of their foreign debt payments. Uh, it's important to remember that Venezuela produces very little of the products they actually consume. They depend highly on imports, and imports require dollars, and that's something the country is lacking. And so in the end, Maduro's going to have to probably make a decision, or whoever takes Maduro's place, say Diosdado Cabello, the Speaker of the National Assembly, they're going to have to make a decision between paying the foreign debt and keeping the social peace, and I think they're going to opt for social peace. Now, the the advantage the Chinese have, though, is that uh, they're the ones that are most likely, even in a case of default, to get the largest amount of their money back because of the stuff, because of many of the deals they have uh, and the leverage they have as a global actor, they're much more likely to take a uh, not take as much of a haircut, if any haircut is, as all, on a default as it's compared to, say, some international creditors, because they have this extra power of negotiation that many individual companies and investors lack. 
I realize this is a bit of a tangent, but you you mentioned the uncertainty of President Maduro in Venezuela. Uh, recently on this program, we had another analyst say they, they wouldn't be surprised if he didn't finish the year as, as president in, in Venezuela. Are you also joining that group of people who are predicting that uh, there may be a change in government in Venezuela? Oh, well, things are getting worse and worse by the day in Venezuela with rampant inflation and moves by the Maduro government uh, against the private sector that in the short term help it a little bit in terms of public opinion, but just discourage investment even more and therefore aggravate the shortages and inflation problems the country is facing. And it's unclear how much longer uh, Venezuelans, and particularly, I would say, people within the Chavista movement are going to be willing to accept Nicolas Maduro's uh, lack of leadership and the road that he's taking the country down. And I would expect if if we see a change, it's not going to be uh, a military coup per se, but it could be a replacement by Maduro, by somebody from within Chavismo with Diosdado Cabello being the most likely uh, alternative. Let's get back to uh, China in Latin America. And in that regard, we see the Obama administration making some major moves in Latin America just in the past year, especially the move uh, for rapprochement with Cuba. Um, Many have said that um, appointing the vice president as a key person to deal with Latin American policy, all of these moves that we see of the Obama administration really are part of the pivot to the Pacific and part of the pivot toward dealing with China. Do you see that in the same way? Uh, I would view Cuba much more via the lens of domestic policy. I mean, I, there's, there is some China aspect involved there because the Chinese are uh, investing uh, in our, in Cuba primarily for reason, nickel, uh, the nickel resources. But by and large, I would view President Obama's move via Cuba much through, more through the lens of domestic politics in that it, our policies regarding Cuba were something of an anachronism and what he's effectively done is thrown down a gauntlet to Cuban-American activists in Florida saying, I don't think that your leverage and your ability to mobilize votes against candidates in Florida in, in the Electoral College is what it used to be, and therefore I'm going to sort of break the mold and move uh, our country's uh, foreign policy into a more normal state with Cuba. Now, where I think that does help in terms of Latin America is that Because of the anachronistic and really hypocritical nature of our U.S.-Cuba policy, that is, for some reason, Cuba was signaled out among all the dictatorships in the world with whom we would not have relations. We don't seem to have that type of trouble with a host of other countries. Including Uh, China. Right. Yeah, it, it, it 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 was a real impediment to our relations with other Latin American countries, because even our allies sort of scoffed at it the policy and really were hesitant to support it, and it interfered with U.S. abilities to interact in regional organizations, even something as simple as the Summit of the Americas that's going to be taking place in April in Panama was going to be threatened by our refusal to let Cuba participate, which could have resulted in a good third of the Latin American countries not participating, and that's something that's been avoided by this move by President Obama. I think it, it, it definitely helps our Latin American policy more generally. But one place, one thing that hasn't changed, and this is true under President Obama, but also under President Bush, is that the United States has more or less uh, left South America in terms of it really does not try to engage in South America or play an active role in trying to influence politics and policy in South America. And to the extent to which we've done anything, it's we've delegated that authority to Brazil, which Brazil hasn't really done much with. Some might say that um, the president um, has refocused himself on Latin America just in the past few months and his changes with uh, immigration and the Cuba policy, both in November and December of last year. So um, perhaps the Obama administration is making a change forward in the next two years. Oh, but once again, I think it's much more viewed from a domestic point of view. So immigration has less to do with Latin America and more to do with Latinos in the United States. And Cuba has more to do with uh, politics in the United States than it does uh, Cuba per se. Although, if in terms of 
uh, acti- activities in Latin America, certainly the Cuba policy is the most fundamentally important and the one that does have uh, legs outside of the, our borders. Back to China, what haven't we covered in regard to China and its relationship with Latin America that that you think is important for us to know? Well, I think one thing where China is very active, particularly in South America, in terms of importing foodstuffs from places like Argentina, Paraguay, Brazil, and Uruguay, and therefore China, the Chinese government is very influential in those countries because it has, particularly in a case like Argentina, because it has the lever of turning off Argentine import or imports from Argentina in terms of soybeans, for instance, uh, as a way to leverage the Argentine government to, say, be more friendly or to change its policies on specific issues. And those could be uh, in terms of uh, develop, uh, lo- loans, repaying loans, defaulting on different issues, or it could be in... Uh, removing import restrictions for Chinese manufactured goods. So I, the Chinese, one thing that's always impressed me about the Chinese government in South America most recently is that, particularly in countries that export quite a bit to China, the Chinese government has an extra bit of leverage over those countries, something that in terms of ensuring that Chinese companies are not discriminated against in the country uh, and ensuring that Chinese China gets a fa- fair shake in terms of import and export policies, something that, for instance, uh, the United States lacks. Uh, if we, if you go to Argentina or Paraguay or Uruguay, in many ways the Chinese government often has more leverage over those governments than does the U.S. government. And the Chinese ambassador can be more influential and be heard to a greater extent than the U.S. ambassador. Thank you so much, Professor Mark Jones of the James Baker III Institute for Public Policy and Rice University, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us. Oh, no, it was my pleasure. Thank you. This week, we spoke with another expert on China and its role in Latin America, Kevin Gallagher of Boston University. Gallagher is a fellow at the Pardee Center for the Study of the Longer Range Future. He's the author of several books, including The Dragon in the Room, China and the Future of Latin American Industrialization. He joined us via Skype from Boston. Yeah, China and Latin American economic relations have just surged over the past 15 years. At the turn of the century, in the year 2000, China wasn't really on the radar screen for many Latin American countries at all. They only traded about $12 billion worth of goods and services with the Chinese. And in 2013, uh, that changed by order of magnitude, and trade in 2013 was $280 billion between Latin America and Chinese and there's two or three countries, Chile, Brazil, Peru, where China is now the number one trading partner. We also seem to refer to China as, as the banker of this hemisphere, not just doing a lot of banking with the U.S., but um, some people would say without loans right now to Venezuela, to Ecuador, those economies would be in worse shape. Yeah, uh, Chinese banks, the China Development Bank and the Export-Import Bank of China, in between 2005 and 2014, have lent upwards of $118 billion to Latin American governments. I co-coordinate something called the China Finance, China Latin America Finance Database, which tracks all this. And like you said, it couldn't come at a better time. The IMF now puts Latin American growth on a real slowdown, 1.4% in 2014, 2.2% in 2015. That's largely because U.S. interest rates are creeping up, Commodity prices are going down, and that's core for Latin America. That's commodity prices are really their thing, and Chinese demand in general slowing down. And so this finance couldn't come uh, at a better time for Latin America. Is that going to make the difference for some countries, uh, especially I'm thinking Venezuela and Argentina? Um, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner was just in China about two weeks ago on a on a trade mission. Uh, a lot of people wonder whether her economy is going to slip into recession, um, certainly the Venezuelan economy already in a recession. Some people wonder whether it's not in depression. Um, are, the, are the Chinese what's going to save these particular economies? I don't think the Chinese are going to save these economies. Uh, these economies have to save themselves. And I'm quite concerned about the extent to which Argentina and Venezuela can manage their way out of this. Argentina certainly isn't getting any help from anywhere around the world. But in Venezuela's case, it's yeah, the blame is really at their doorstep. 
Um, China, the Venezuelans went to China in late January uh, asking for more financing, and the Chinese are the most exposed to Venezuela in the region at $50 billion, and the Chinese have reportedly said that they wouldn't give the Venezuelans any more financing. Uh, they have given $7.5 billion worth of financing to Ecuador this year, um, and it looks like some new deals very recently with Argentina. So there are some signs of China holding back and uh, realizing they might be overexposed to countries that uh, that uh, have a tradition of, of default and uh, mismanagement. There have been some speculation on whether the Venezuelans might default. They haven't done so so far. Your book's subtitle talks about Latin American industrialization. Behind that, I would guess, is certainly the development of the oil sector in Venezuela, Ecuador, and elsewhere. But what other industrialization is China having an effect on in Latin America? Yeah, the 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 place where all the employment is and all the value added is the manufacturing sector. Places like Mexico and uh, central, some Central American countries, Brazil, Colombia, Argentina, have all uh, built up modest but significant manufacturing sectors, which employ a significant amount of people and are really the engines of growth in a lot of these countries. What the countries in the region didn't focus on was maintaining productivity in that sector during what I call the China boom. From 2003 to 2013, China was just buying up so much primary commodities from South America uh, that boosted the price of those goods and helped the economies grow better than they've grown since the 1950s. Uh, while all that demand occurs in your country, your exchange rate also appreciates because everybody wants your stuff. Um, when your exchange rate appreciates, that prices out your manufacturing industries that are trying to export. Uh, you add the fact that Chinese imports in manufacturing were so cheap during the period, and we've experienced a significant hollowing out of Latin American industry. Now, some of that will bounce back now that growth is slowing and exchange rates are depreciating. But unfortunately, the the region didn't save enough of the China boom and invested in innovation and, and productivity-enhancing investments. And so the exchange rate help will only go so far. Uh, Latin America has really lost its niche in some key commodity, uh, excuse me, key um, global commodity chains uh, because of the hollowing out of industry over the past decade. In which commodity chains would those be? Well, the global electronics industry has been is key. Um, Brazilian and especially Mexican companies were very much in that uh, sector. Uh, we've seen recently, just within the past few months, the Obama administration really make a pivot hard to Latin America. And some people have suggested that that's a strategic pivot to counterbalance China. And as part of Obama's Pacific strategy, how, how do you see the geopolitical change in how the U.S. is dealing with Latin America, do you see that as also affected by China's interest in the region? Yeah, the um, U.S. pivot to Latin America and the uh, thawing of Cuban relations is long overdue and, and couldn't come at a better time as well. Uh, because Latin America is largely democratic now and there aren't terrorist cells there of any significance, uh, the United States has really taken the region for granted over the past decade and a half, especially after September 11th and the financial crisis and so forth. And what they didn't realize is during uh, during that whole period, the region was very strategic for China because of its rich abundance in natural resources that have been so key to China's industrialization miracle. And so they turned around one day, the U.S. did, and said, gosh, uh, Brazil, Colombia, Chile, Peru, Mexico, these are our most strategic allies in the region. And uh, they have China as the number one or number two trading partner in each case. And so this Cuba step is a, is a small step in terms of its economic impact, but it's a very important first step um, from, from what the United States really needs to do and, and change from a, a patronizing kind of relationship with the hemisphere to one of a partnership. Uh, the Chinese really stress partnership over patronization. And the U.S. is has really wagged its finger at what it considers its backyard, uh, telling them what's right and what's wrong for their economies and so forth. And and uh, and this Cuba step is important because it's something that the Latin Americans have disagreed with us on for a long time, 
and uh, we've uh, sort of a- agreed to disagree on the particulars, but uh, but have uh, held out an olive branch that could have real significant impact over the future. We, we see this relatively new multinational organization called CELOC, which is uh, an organization of all the countries in the hemisphere except, importantly, the U.S. and Canada. And, and they open the year with the meeting of foreign ministers in Beijing, talking to the Chinese. Uh, do you see that as symbolic to what you just discussed? Yeah, the CELAC-China relationship is the first time uh, really re- really heralds a, a new era for China and Latin America. Uh, the first decade or more was really a number of bilateral China slash Brazil, China slash Nicaragua relationships and, and deals and so forth. And January 8th and 9th, when CELAC went to China and the finance ministers and many heads of state met with Xi Jinping and his counterparts, was the first region-wide conversation with China. And they pledged to increase trade in a decade uh, to $500 billion and increase investment to $250 billion. Now, the United States, even though we're recovering from our economic crisis, uh, there's no way that we can match the Chinese dollar for dollar in the region. There's just absolutely no way. We have to consolidate the gains that we have. We have to remind and emphasize the region that we uh, we are still the largest trading partner of most of the Latin American countries. Um, this Cuba step is a really important step. Yeah, but we'll have to do a lot more. And so then do you see the region in transition, China becoming the dominant player and the U.S. as a secondary player? I don't think China will become the dominant player. I think, uh, it, uh, as I said, that the, the United States private sector and the World Bank and so forth are still major investors into the region. Um, and even with this surge in Chinese investment. You have to remember it started from a much lower point. And so overall, uh, China will probably surpass Europe as the second largest uh, trader in Latin America soon, but probably not the United States for, for the foreseeable future. You mentioned Nicaragua and the Chinese are involved in a canal project there in Nicaragua, at least the beginnings of one. Uh, what are your thoughts about that project? Well, the Chinese uh, see natural resources and trade as a key to their economy. And even though the Panama Canal has expanded, uh, it still has a long line of ships. And so the Chinese are engaged in two different projects. Uh, one is a is a canal through Nicaragua, which the Chinese government has really shied away from. It's really a multi-billionaire from China who's... Uh, uh, working out investments with with Nicaragua to have a canal through that country, um, the very very controversial project because of its uh, implications for ecological sensitivity uh, in Nicaragua and the fact that it'll likely um, since it's going to go right through the country almost create a north and south Korea uh, sort of a, a north and south Nicaragua. And it's raised a lot of eyebrows in terms of its security implications, given that um, uh, the United States does not have super friendly relations with Nicaragua. The one that the Chinese state is much more involved in and that uh, has a lot more backing was also recently announced. And that is a high-speed rail project from Lima to Sao Paulo, Brazil, Lima, Peru to Sao Paulo, Brazil, um, that will enhance uh, a lot of the trade. Um, in between China and Latin America. Some might call that a dry canal project. Dry canal, absolutely. And so I'm I'm wondering, the title of your book, uh, The Dragon in the Room, is that meant to have a, a subtle negative overtone, or is that just iconic of China's representation on the global map? Well, uh, you know, obviously I was uh, evoking the... the the uh, elephant in the room, which is sort of uh, something that's there that no one's really talking about. And when I wrote that book in 2010, um, I anticipated a lot of uh, what must be talked about at the White House these days, which is that uh, China's in a major presence there and and we should do something about it. I'm actually working on a new book right now called Saving the China Boom, uh, China's Rise and Prospects for Prosperity in the Americas, where I'm concerned that the Latin Americans um, only grabbed the short-term benefits of the China boom, and they haven't used uh, 
some of the benefits from China boom to uh, invest in more long-run sustainable development projects for the region. And now as the countries are seeing a slowdown, uh, they, uh, they don't have many things that they can fall back on. What haven't we covered that you think is important for our listeners to know? The one thing that uh, over the past 10 years that has been a boon for the region is the massive uptick in sales and exports and investment in primary commodities. This is what South America has a lot of, uh, copper and iron, soybeans and so forth. And while finance ministers have been really excited about uh, the sales of these over the past decade and have also have been the private companies, uh, they are endemic to environmental degradation and social conflict in the region. So over the past decade, there's been numerous conflicts in the Peruvian Andes, in the Ecuador and Amazon, uh, where extraction of mining has created conflicts with local communities and lots of environmental uh, destruction. Um, on the one hand, this is, this is not China's fault because China is just demanding that kind of stuff for its economic growth just the way the the West did uh, in the 19th century. And the bulk of the blame really has to go to Latin American governments for not investing in environmental protection and creating the right kind of dialogues between investors and local communities so they can both benefit. Um, But the Chinese uh, are to blame to a certain extent as well because when they're going to these countries, they're not upholding many of the country's local standards uh, or even standards at home. And if China wants to continue to expand market share in the region uh, and build on the region to expand to other places, uh, their companies are going to need to upgrade the safeguards that they have to engage with the communities that they're doing these mining and infrastructure projects with and adhere to local law. We've seen the U.S. and China pledge to do better on the global stage when it comes to the environment. Do you think that that is realistically going to play out in the next 10 years in Latin America? Yeah, it's important, uh, this great deal between the Chinese and the United States on uh, capping and peaking emissions will be key, uh, but we need to make sure that uh, reductions in coal production in China don't turn into things like uh, massive imports from Colombia's coal sector, uh, which is one of, the, one of the key exporters of coal, where we've seen an uptick in Colombian exports of coal. So we have to make sure that a bilateral deal in terms of carbon uh, doesn't uh, doesn't turn into exporting the problems to other places. Uh, in addition to coal imports from Colombia, obviously China is the world's largest soy consumer, and they've been purchasing about 50% of Brazilian soybean exports. Uh, soybean in, in Brazil is increasingly a driver of deforestation in the Amazon, which is an important Uh, sink to capture carbon dioxide emissions in the world. Thank you so much, Kevin Gallagher of Boston University, the author of The Dragon in the Room, China and the Future of Latin American Industrialization, among other books. Our guest today on Latin Pulse, joining us via Skype from Boston. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Rick. Coming up, how did the Chinese diaspora shape modern Peru? We'll have the answers. Stay with us. This is Tom Scared for the Borgen Project. Each year, nearly two million children die from preventable diseases. Each day, 30,000 people die from hunger. 500 each hour are children. The Borgen Project is turning this around. We need your help. To learn more, go to borgenproject.org. That's B-O-R-G-E-N project.org. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. And now we shift the focus of our Chinese special to look specifically at the Chinese and their influence in Peru. Larry Clayton is an emeritus professor at the University of Alabama. However, he did a lot of growing up in Lima, Peru's capital. He's written about that experience and shared his experiences with us about Lima and its Chinese influences. He joined us via Skype from Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Yeah, you know, they, they, they call everybody from the Orient El Chino. You know, they even call the president Fujimori uh, El Chino because he was Japanese. So uh, I, I grew up uh, as, a, as a, a little gringo, privileged. You know, my dad worked for a U.S. corporation. And, and, the, and, the, and the local, what, what Central Americans are called in Mexicans, the pulperia, 
you know, the, 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 little, the little store usually was owned by the Chinos. And so I, I had kind of a, a, you know, an oblique in, insight into the fact there's more than just Cholos and Peruvians and Gringos and people around here. There, there's the Chino population. And later on, when I was working on a book uh, on W.R. Grayson Company in Peru in a modernization process, I hit the Chinese population full tilt boogie that, that had been imported into Peru and the maybe a hundred thousand Chinese coolies to work on the railroads of Peru. And that got me interested in in uh, in how how they got there and what the what was work like for them there, how they adapted and and uh and how, you know, they fit into a a, a fairly complicated Peruvian cultural society. Made up of, you know, descendants of Spaniards and and um and uh, descendants of the Incas uh, and the various others and descendants of blacks. And then I found myself facing, wow, and there's there's a, a tens of thousands of Chinese here, too. And uh, and, and then I, that, I connected that with growing up as a kid in Peru and, and going down to the Chino to get a, you know, a bar of chocolate or a piece of chewing gum. And they, they fill the role that you find many immigrants from um, Oh, from the Middle East, uh, filling here in the United States these days. You know, uh, working shops, Seven uh, Elevens, uh, uh, Syrians and Lebanese and others. And so, um, it's a fascinating insight into how people adapt in the new world. And in this particular instance, it was Peru to very different conditions from that they had at home. When you talk about the Chinese that came over to help build the railroads, we're, of course, now talking about the 19th century. We're talking about the 19th century, about 1860s, especially the 1870s. And uh, there's one particular figure that stands out, uh, Henry Miggs. He was a Connecticut Yankee, literally he was from Connecticut, not only simply a Yankee, Connecticut Yankee, who had made a fortune in imports and exports in California and then got in trouble with the law. And uh, he was a, he, he was a, he was I would say a quintessential entrepreneur. He could hustle. He could hustle people. He could raise money. And he ended up in Chile building railroads in Chile in the 1860s and 1870s, the first railroads. And then from there he went to Peru. And, of course, they were trying to penetrate into the highlands to, to bring the, the minerals and the ores, the silver, the gold, the tin, and others uh, down to the coast. And, um, and he needed a, a good, reliable source of labor. And um, and and he turned to the Chinese, uh, Chinese coolies who would come over on a what we would call an indentured contract, like like Englishmen came over to the colonies in the 17th and 18th century for six or seven years to work on the railroads. And uh, that that's that's how it got started in Peru. It was Migs and others, and then later on they put him to work in the Guano Islands, the Chincha Islands off the southwest coast of Peru, because it was hard work digging among you know piles of of guano, which is, you know, bird droppings, and very few Peruvians wanted to do that. So the Chinese were employed in that as well. You say the Chinese work to fit themselves into a complex and, from your perspective, very diverse society in Peru. How did they do that? How did they move from being um, um, Chinese to this state of being what the Peruvians call Tucson? Well, you know, it, it, was, it, it, it wasn't a, a simple kind of... Um, uh, transition uh, because the Chinese uh, were looked upon as strange, um, certainly foreign, uh, speaking a language that Peruvians didn't understand, and um, and there were no women that came over. Mostly there were coolies. So for them, it, it was a chance to work and build up a little bit and get back to China. But very few of them made it back to China. So they they basically began to to uh, bring in, um, uh, to provide for, for Chinese women coming over as, as their partners in Peru. And uh, there were some unions and intermarriages by the second generation, but the first generation really had a tough, tough road to hoe. They, they were marginalized. Um, they turned often to uh, opium to, to overcome the, the pain and the hurt of working in the cold Andes, uh, seven days a week, 10 hours a day, or working in the guano fields. And um, so, so and they, were, and they didn't quickly gain um, wealth or, or, or acclimatize themselves to Peru. It was, it was a long process that took several different generations. And by the time I came along as a kid growing up in Peru in the 1940s and early 1950s, uh, the Chinos, still calling them the Chinos, you know, still 
pretty much maintain the cultural integrity of their own of their own their own people. Um, not a lot of intermarriages, not not a lot of uh, uh, children born of unions, but enough to to have integrated into the Peruvian um, racial mix by let's say a hundred years later. Depending on the statistics that you read and the source, uh, today the Chinese population in Peru is anywhere from two to five percent of the population, maybe as many as 1.3 million ethnic Chinese living in Peru. How is that culture represented? Is it still purely Chinese or is it some sort of hybrid culture? What, what do you but, remember yeah, from that? It, 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 they, they have kept to themselves in marriage in many, many different ways. But, but there have been uh, inter- intermarriages, marriages with a Peruvian mestizo population, what they call cholos in Peru. Um, my sense is that they have they have preserved much of their cultural unity, uh, kind of kind of like the Jewish populations in other parts of Europe and the world have have. Although they have intermarried and everything, and of course, and that, that you still find a very strong kind of Jewish cultural presence among Jewish communities in which in which uh, which maintains a, a contact with with the with the originals. The, the Chinese are perceived upon are perceived by the Peruvians, and, and, and the Peruvians kind of don't discriminate too much between Chinese and Japanese, but that they understand the difference. But as a people who are very industrious, very hardworking, um, who set a good example, and one of the reasons that uh, Fujimori, Alberto Fujimori, or Fujimori as we say, was elected in in 1990 as a first. Um, first president of Peru of, of uh, Oriental extraction, was that they perceived of him, as they did of many people from China and Japan principally, as, as hardworking, industrious, frugal, um, the very thing that Peruvians needed. And many Peruvians criticized Peruvians for not having, for being too, uh, too carefree, uh, uh, not, not having a long-term vision of, of, of work and, uh, and savings and, and really building the infrastructure that they needed to build uh, to develop the country, and so they saw much of this kind of uh, cultural um, uh, this expression of uh, what we would call kind of the entrepreneurial spirit or capitalism uh, within that community and so they they were admired in many ways after a long period of kind of exclusion and isolation chinos we don 't want anything to do with the Chinese because they 're dirty they they take opium. They're given to homosexuality, and that some of that did happen because there were no women there for for a long time, and it took them a while to overcome kind of these prejudices. Um, but um, in in the modern period, by the time I get there, by the time I I begin to realize uh, that that there is a substantial Chinese population and it has a place here that's kind of unique, although there are other pockets of the Chinese in Latin America, uh, they had moved beyond kind of th- those early prejudices in the same fashion that. Craig, I'm talking from Alabama, that we move beyond Plessy versus Ferguson, uh, separate but equal, civil rights, discrimination, Jim Crow laws, you know, and move through a period in which we began to try and, and make some of the reality of the, some of the some of the principles of the Constitution of reality, uh, you know, all men are created equal kind of thing. And so and much of that happened among the Chinese in Peru, but it was a slow process. It, they were excluded. They were they were they were discriminated against because they were different and they were and they were. We have talked on this program uh, before about uh, Alberto Fujimori and, uh, of course, about the impact of the Japanese community in Peru. And, and we should be clear that Fujimori comes from the ethnic yeah. Japanese part. But but talking about him, he's a disgraced former president now. But you mentioned how he came in and why mm-hmm. he, he came in on this wave of optimism. Uh, the Chinese and the Japanese communities in Peru do have an impact politically on modern day Peru, and so what are your thoughts about them as a as a political force? Yeah, oh, you know that, that you open up a lot of windows. Um, I I was in Peru on a Fulbright in 1988 as as the campaign for for president kind of cranked up, and uh, one of the principal candidates was uh, Mario Vargas Llosa, you know, the great Peruvian novelist. And I was living in the same neighborhood we was living in my, in my, um, the person that owned the home I was living in knew Vadiasco. So I got an interview with him and went to talk with him. He had a, a great program for reform, 
for reforming the, the, the way Peruvians behave. You know, a typical politician, we're going to change how things happen. And Fujimori picked up on that a lot. And, and uh, Vargas Llosa was perceived as, as, oh, too much of an aristocrat. And Fujimori was elected basically on a ticket that reflected, let's, let's, what, 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 what you, you political scientists and other kinds of called, you know, the, um, the, 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 the entrepreneurial spirit that was coming alive in Latin America in the, in the 1990s and, and 1980s and 90s. And, and Fujimori was perceived as representing an ethnic perspective and an ethnic way of life that Peruvians needed to emulate, okay, the Japanese, because the Japanese were riding a crest of, of success in the world. And, and he, Fujimori was a second generation Japanese, but he was very much perceived as, as carrying the, kind of those genes with him. And he, he did fall from grace, as it were, and he's still in jail, although I think he's still trying to get out. But, but, I, but I saw him as a tough and good character who brought Sendero Luminoso down, finally, in, in 1992. And, the Peruvian and he, guerrilla group. The Peruvian guerrilla group was translated into, you know, the, the, the shiny path. path. And, uh, and they were kind of Pol Pot-style communists who wanted to destroy the Peruvian body politic and, and recreate it totally different following the, the model of Mao Zedong. And, uh, and, and, and Fujimori suspended the constitution. He let the army loose, and they, and they brought Sendero down, finally. And so he was a tough guy, but he had some problems and, you know, that, uh, with one of, his, one of his leading assistants and then a the little bit of corruption here and there. And I, I don't want to diminish too much what, what he did outside of the law that got him in trouble. But he, he, he did represent in Peru a point of view, and, and you're very correct, uh, the, the, and his daughter is, is uh, very much, uh, has a very high profile in Peruvian politics. And, and actually, so does the wife, uh, Nadine Heredia, of the present president. And, Thank you, Larry Clayton of the University of Alabama, joining us via Skype from Tuscaloosa, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thanks so much. Okay. Thank you. It was a pleasure being here with you. And now, the final portion of our special focus on China in Latin America. This week, we spoke to Adam McEwen, an author with an expertise on the Chinese diaspora. McEwen is the author of several books, including Melancholy Order, Asian Migration and the Globalization of Borders, and Chinese Migrant Networks and Cultural Change. We spoke with him via Skype from New York City about the historical influences of Chinese migrants on Peruvian culture. Yeah, my, my book actually talks about what I would call the, the second wave into Peru. There was actually three waves. Um, the most famous one was the ones who came as indentured laborers from about 1848 to 1874 um, to work mostly on, on sugar plantations, a little bit in the guano mines off the coast, mostly recruited through Macau on these eight-year indenture contracts. Um, that got pretty much stopped for um, humanitarian reasons. It was a big international scandal, um, the poor treatment on the ships and in the plantations. But after that, a second wave started about 1903, 1904, mostly of wealthier Chinese merchants working in commercial houses that were linked between Hong Kong and Peru. And another, um, about 140,000 came as indentured, maybe another... 20 to 30,000 came from about 1904 until 1929, until that got stopped by the, um, the populist government, Sanchez Cerro, in the 1930s. And then uh, there's a third wave, more recent, starting in the 19, 1980s of um, more modern Chinese immigrants. And many of these folks did not return to China. They, they stayed in Peru. Um, the first wave especially. They had... They did their, and although they went there in the hopes of earning money, they barely earned any money. If they served out their, if they managed to survive their eight-year contract, they ended up broke. They were notorious beggars and street cleaners around much of Peruvian cities after their contracts. Um, although the second wave that I studied, um, that was a pretty strong back and forth movement because, like I say, they many of them were were in these sort of transnational um, merchant mercantile houses. They came to Peru for a few years to work, went back to Hong Kong, perhaps moved somewhere else. These waves, though, of Chinese emigration, they end up having an impact on Lima, do they not? 
Definitely. Um, again, each wave had a very different impact. When, when I was in Peru in the 1990s, it seems mere, nearly every African Peruvian that I met would tell me about some Chinese great-great-grandfather or something. Um, the, that first wave of indentured Chinese really kind of integrated into the lower and poorer classes of Peru. Um, the culture of Chinese food in Peru, I think, really came with this the second wave that had the stronger connections to China, more money, um, and um, just a bit more a bit more influence, not being these poorly treated indentured workers as if that is in the first wave. Although the somehow this legacy of being really poor and degraded indentured workers is still a very strong memory in Peru. You, you mentioned um, um, Chinatown and and Chinese culture as far as having an impact on Peruvian culture. It, it, it's not just Chinese food that's represented in Lima then. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a mix, a mezcla of, of cultures mm. there. When I lived in Lima in the mid-90s, I lived in um, um, Pueblo Libre, a kind of, of, of middle class, um, a middle class section of Peru. And you could, um, you could really notice it was very heavily Asian out there, both Chinese and Japanese, second, third generation people. You know, Lima is just such a, a racially mixed place, and the Asians are definitely a, a key fixture in that. The food, um, this memory, even the Japanese are called um, Chinos in, in, in Lima. And there's this real strong memory of of, 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 of um, coastal Peru being, you know, Criolla, Creole, the Creole culture out there, and of Asians being a very, a very important part of that. Although it's, um, it, it, it's hard to identify specifics. There are some Chinese scholars and um, not Chinese, some some historians in Peru who really try to mix it up. Although other than food legacies, physical legacies on people. And, and the Chinatown, it's, it's, it's hard to pick out what exactly is Asian from this, this mix of coastal Creole, Creole Peru, which is just, um, I mean, it's just something of its own. Can you describe to us some of the dishes and things that um, you see in this fusion culture? The chifa is, I mean, it's like, like every country, they develop their own specific style of, of um, Chinese food. And it's, uh, um, this comes with a kind of wonton soup of a, of a flavor I've never tasted anywhere else. Um, lots of really sweet tamarind sauces over the dishes. And the Peruvians I met are always insisting that, oh, it's the best Chinese food anywhere I've heard. Um, it's, um, you know, better than Hong Kong, better than China, I hear. And, of course, the Chinese that I met back in the kitchens are just kind of cooking it up for the Peruvians. They're asking me, do you like this stuff? And I say, it's pretty good. And they would point out, oh, they like it out there, but so we just cook it for them. So it's a very specific style of Chinese food. You know, some people might say the love of rice on the coast was, at least if not caused, perpetuated by Chinese influence. That's harder, that's harder to trace. But, you know, it's just not something that, other than just being part of the whole mix, it's not necessarily emphasized. I mean, it's very effectively Creole. It's something new that doesn't really... It's not terribly self-aware of its origins very often, which is, which is in some ways a fantastic, fantastic thing about it. Thank you so much. Adam mm -hmm. McEwen, the author of Chinese Migrant Networks and Cultural Change, and also Melancholy Order, Asian Migration and the Globalization of Borders, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us on this edition of Latin Pulse. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You could find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. If you're looking for earlier editions of Latin Pulse, we're available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Flipboard. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Mini Mundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, dot org, and then slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. 
for our entire team, production assistant Gabriela Conchola and producer Jim Singer. I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2015 Las Rocas Productions. <laughs>